Delighted to be here today with Helen Liddell. And this is a topic we've been wanting to visit for quite a while. It's actually been requested for a number of years even, never mind months. And then I was at an event late last year. And this lady blew my mind. And she really did start to visit not only the analysis of this problem, but also was proposing some pragmatic solutions, which many people otherwise bottle. And so I'm so pleased to get her in the studio today to talk about the opioid crisis and also just the topic of, of medicines management in this space. So we're going to visit all sorts of different corners of that conversation. But before we get stuck into the meat of it, Helen, could you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your story that brought you here? Okay, thank you, Jack. Uh, I'm Helen Liddell. I'm a pharmacist and I have got a long history of working in the NHS. I was a senior pharmacist in commissioning organisations for many years. I've been involved in the development of, development of clinical pharmacy in general practice. And for the last uh, year or two, I've been working as a consultant to uh, Connect Health and really working in the space of pain. So I've become more of a, less of a generalist and more of a specialist in the pain area, using my strategic experience and experience uh, and commissioning to help develop services for that organisation as well. So uh, I've been working for the last year or so, working with people in pain and understanding quite a lot about the strategic agenda for uh, the pressure to reduce opioids across all healthcare organisations. And so uh, I've met Jack at a previous um, meeting last year where I was talking about the opioid crisis and what we're doing in Connect Health to try and address that. And I'm happy to be talking to you today about that same topic. Mm, lovely. Now, we've one of the things that I think we want to try and make sure that we admit straight out the gates is we're going to be talking a lot specifically about the UK landscape on this because it is somewhat different to the US in terms of the sort of broader social factors. Although it's sort of going that way, some argue um, that we're following suit on a mistake that got made across the pond. However, we'll also be talking a little bit about the medicines themselves, which can be more, you know, that's something that is transferable cross-culturally. Um, so there'll be, there'll be times where we kind of do that. One of, the, one of the things I thought would be smart for us to start with, though, is what are opioids? Can we start with that and then go, hopefully everything should flow from that? Hopefully everybody's heard about the word opioids. Uh, it's a group of medicines that are painkillers and they work on opioid receptors. And it's a whole family that covers... Uh, from weak opioids, which are codeine, dihydrocodeine, to strong opioids, which are mainly morphine or morphine derivatives, but buprenorphine, uh, um, oxycodone, uh, fentanyl, uh, there's a number of them, and tramadol is also another one that's, uh, that's a, a strong opioid. Uh, we come across them uh, regularly in mixtures with paracetamol, such as uh, codidromol and cocodamol, uh, right up to um, diamorphine and injectables that you might, you might see in, um, in uh, acute situations and accidents, etc. So it's, they all work the same way on opioid receptors and they all have the same potential to cause addiction, which is why we're talking about them here today. So let's talk about their positive mechanism of effect, let's say then. So before we go into sort of side effects as well as the consequences downstream of what the addictive properties but 
They all work the same way. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's the mechanism of effects of the drugs? Well, I think that they work on opioid receptors within the body. And I think that the most important thing is not to worry too much about the mechanism, about how medicines work. As a pharmacist, we don't get caught up so much in the pharmacology. It's very interesting. But it's what it does to people that that makes the difference and how they work and how effective they are or what the side effects are. If you get caught up in the theory of these things, you can start barking down the wrong tree. You can try and work something out that this should happen, this doesn't happen. Uh, we know they block the receptors in pain. Uh, it's a very complex mechanism. We know they work on the same receptors. It's as simple as that. The interesting thing is whether it's causing any benefit or harm for individuals, and that's why we're interested. And that's the, I think, one of the things that I would be interested in because that, that's already surprised me in, in some ways. Because some people suggest that. The knowledge that we should lean into in this space is about the very integrated pharmacokinetics, pharmadynamics of individual medications, how they map onto individuals and things like that. You clearly don't think that that's where we should spend our time thinking in that direction, perhaps. No, I think you can get too caught up in the theory of these things. Uh, I used to do uh, quite a bit of lecturing about the theory of why uh, certain drugs should cause certain uh, outcomes. And actually, when you do the trial, uh, very different results um, uh, get seen. For example, the use of, um, <laughs> I'm struggling here, mm-hmm. uh, use of uh, hormone replacement, uh, postmenopause, uh, and the, the, the benefits and risks in terms of that, uh, the theory doesn't match out with what actually happened in the trials. And there's plenty of other examples. So I think we've learned a lesson as pharmacists and medicines and management experts that actually you need to work on what happens in terms of populations in people rather than drawing fancy diagrams about how it might work and the theory behind it. And do we think that that's because of the variability between humans and between just any general cohort of the population because that's we've found that in other areas never mind medicine uh partly because of the variability but partly because there are other things going on that we don't understand bodies are extremely complex there are confounding factors you're only taking account of one part of it and actually there are perhaps other things that are coming into play that we don't understand there's many many factors going into the outcomes for a person when you put a drug inside them Absolutely. And uh, thinking of these things in a physiotherapy context is that, of course, it's seldom going to be the the only relevant new variable or or existing variable. We've got other confounding factors around someone's life, including varieties and sleep, exercise, all sorts of other things, other medicines, of course. Absolutely. No, great that that that's the case. I'm sure... uh, a sigh of relief being uh, expressed from lots of our listeners at that news. Uh, so that's great that they don't have to get into the weeds of the get the chemistry books back out. That's helpful. No. Why are they in the news? Okay. <laughs> and I think you alluded to it earlier. It's really come from America and uh, we can look over there and there really has been a crisis in America. I think it came out of a of an article in the New York Times in about 2011 where they did some analysis of the deaths Uh, from various causes across the population in the USA. And they realised that the huge, massive increase in the number of deaths caused by opioids. Uh, And actually, from about 2001, 2002... The number of deaths in the US has, in, has overtaken those from gun crime and car accidents. And it has increased absolutely massively. And I think they realised and rang the bells and realised that they uh, had got a, 
a crisis going on and they looked at the amount of prescribing and they were way above any other country in the world in terms of uh, prescribing per population. We call it defined daily doses uh, for opioids uh, and they realised they'd caused an awful lot of harm. And then, of course, that spread around for everybody else to have a look in their data and their reported deaths. Uh, and in the, U- the UK, we're not as bad as the, the, the America. I mean, we didn't have never prescribed them as freely, but we still have a bit of a problem Hopefully, we've caught it early enough to avert some of the major crises that they have over there. But we've learning our lesson. Our use of uh, opiates is about a third of that of the US, somewhere about 12th in the world in terms of use per population of opioids. So we're not as bad as over there, but we could still see a massive rise in their use. And if you look at the number of reported deaths, I think that uh, doubled in the last five years for opioids deaths. Uh, increased even more for gabapentinides, pregabalin and gab- um, gabapentin. Uh, but uh, we're becoming much more aware of this. And actually, we're beginning to realise the harms we've caused uh, in chronic pain over the last 10 years or so, uh, well, in the last 20 years. And we are quite try- we're quite rightly trying to redress that balance. It's an increasingly used suffixes crisis across pop culture in many ways. Climate crisis, opioid crisis being two that are on interchange, not interchangeable but used frequently in, the, in, in news media. Is the language of crisis appropriate in this instance in the UK context? And if so, how? I think it's a very emotive word, but I think it's quite right that we address the problems that we have caused because it's basically healthcare professional initiated. It's us that have done, caused this problem largely. Uh, so I think it's quite right that we do get people to stand up to attention and that we do something quite strongly about it and reverse that curve. Do we use the word crisis? It's not perhaps like coronavirus or um, uh, some other things. Um, I think it's appropriate to raise awareness uh, with a word like that, uh, because it gets people to uh, address it more uh, stringently. I think that, that yeah, there's a, there's a case to be made for any other language that might think that tinkering around the edges would be sufficient. Yeah. Therefore, the language of crisis makes us think that this is something that we need to not be averse to some things that might be considered radical. And, and deprescribing often feels that way because it seems to be somewhat... Uh, synonymous with being uncaring or lacking empathy sometimes where people think that they would be the idea of taking away something that they perceive to be helping them and so therefore language of crisis can sometimes help downstream from that you can almost feel like somewhat radical shifts or perceived radical shifts can be appropriate if, if a crisis is afoot and so the analysis uh, indicates a bit of crisis so sh- shall we try and put some put some go on sorry I was get a couple of points that come out of that and the first thing is uh, we have to be careful that as we're dealing with the crisis we don't in create some unintended oh, consequences right, yeah, yeah. by you know just concentrating not that on that issue and not dealing with the issues as a whole um and i've forgotten the other one it'll come back to me no worries. but they, that's a good that's a great point and i think that that's something that's going to come out in our conversation because it came out in your talk and it's come out in our preamble before we turn the mics on is that this is a it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a version of a health crisis, essentially, within persistent pain particularly. We know that we have a, we have a chronic pain crisis and in, in that this is part of that. And therefore, fundamentally, we need to make sure that we understand how this is placed within the wider health, health uh, environment and, and yeah. particularly how it fits within individual patients uh, and, and broadly within that patient set. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know what I was going to say. You were talking about deprescribing stuff. And maybe th- people think this, the, uh, the opioid story is the start of deprescribing. Well, as pharmacists and medicines management people, we've been talking about deprescribing and taking people off medicines for many, many years. And actually, this is the role that we undertake. We understand polypharmacy where, you know, uh, 15 years ago, no, more than that, 30 years ago, we would talk about people on lots of medicines being four or more. And now, you know, you need to do a search in your GP surgery for people on 30 medicines or more to talk about polypharmacy. The number of medicines people have gone through is through the roof because the number of things we can do for individual long-term conditions is so much more. So actually taking people off things that do no longer needed and looking at the patient as a whole and seeing where their benefits and harms are for each medicine is something that we've been intrinsic to what we've been doing for, you know, the last 10 years or so. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's true, and I think I'm probably guilty of the fact that it's one of the one of the gateways to me understanding that word. Whereas actually, it's something that's got a far longer legacy than that. And, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. What are the circumstances and mechanisms that lead to some of the adverse consequences, namely dependence? Then, so you, mm. we talked a bit about mechanisms, whether they matter or not, with regards to the active effect of what we're hoping to achieve mm. by by prescription or use of those drugs, but dependence is an issue what are the factors affecting it yeah we can talk a lot about dependency and uh what does the word mean the word means uh that a patient covers uh, suffers from adverse effects when you get withdrawal i guess and is is dependent on it regardless of the benefit sometimes you can be dependent on when there is benefit how do you know that well i guess you you stop the medication and you'll find out <laughs> uh, but we don't have to do that uh, i think we can only really surmise uh, what dependence is, is, we firstly know it's very um, dependent, very variable with individuals. Individuals become dependent to a different extent. Uh, we know that people who are on chronic long-term opiates, are many of them are likely to be dependent. We know people of not myself, but from elsewhere, we know the figures, they've heard figures about 15 to 20% of people who are long-term uh, painkillers and opiates are likely to be dependent. I think it's going to be much more than that. What are the factors that contribute to that? Well, basically, long-term use of, of opiates uh, can always lead to dependence. Do we know whether you're dependent? We're not quite sure. Uh, we could surmise whether the, you actually feel that you need it, the craving, the withdrawal symptoms. We don't know that until we try to withdraw it, etc. We know that most people, if they withdraw suddenly, will suffer some sort of adverse effects. So um, it, it's a risk for anybody taking long-term, uh, long-term uh, opioids. I think the problem is, of course, those in chronic pain that we're talking about, those in chronic pain that are long-term opioids, they don't get the benefit and yet they're still addicted and get the adverse effects. That's the point. It's all about the risks and benefits for an individual. Are the terms interchangeable dependence and addiction? Uh, I think they probably are. You're dependent on something or addicted. It's a bit more of a motive word, I would say, addiction. Yeah. Uh, it often applies something that's abuse, maybe. Uh, but, yeah, for the purposes, I think, for people's understanding, I, I don't see any major... So, yeah, dependence gets used in the medical context more, I think, yeah. these days. And I probably you're right, emotive, and there's almost a... There's almost legal connotations sometimes in the two, or, or political con- con- yeah. connotations to, to I think, addiction. I think dependence is a more acceptable term. Okay. Uh, there was a fairly recent, you said, how, do, how does it come to the news and about the crisis? And I think on the back of all the news that I talked about, there's been a lot of work in the UK. In September last year, there was a public health, a massive public health report on dependence forming medicines, of which opiates was a large number of them, okay. but that actually included five other med- different sorts of medicines. But again, that, that, that report was dependent forming medicines 
DFM for short, mm. for those in the trade. Uh, that's what we talk. We talk about that as a whole group, and that includes opioids, it includes gabapentinides, it includes benzodiazepines as well. So all of these have addiction potential. And does, does a report like that also, because this is where... I think there's some utility to containing it to prescription drugs and, and, and healthcare, healthcare associated medication rather than say if, if that was in a, say, a report alongside cocaine, which is an addictive substance, but is a, of, a, of, a, of a street value and not a prescribed drug these days, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> in that report, for example, or in reports like it, is that distinction made specifically? It was only to look at the prescribing of medicines. So it's right. to look at prescription medicines. Yeah. So that was the whole purpose of the report to look at sure. prescription type medicines. So cocaine didn't didn't come into that. Is there a, um, is there a way in which we can? Um, yeah, I can imagine it's tra- challenging to put them up against each other. But if in terms of it, addictive addictive qualities, you know, with, with cocaine, famously with with rat studies, is that they just sort of take cocaine to a, to a, to do himself into oblivion essentially these these it's that addictive that it's just so they're, they're never satiated is there a are they is there a parallel with regards to opiates is it actually more addictive as a, as a chemical quality or, or less I don't think I could answer that question without doing some studies and I've certainly heard of plenty of studies in rats on various dependence forming medicines where they you know starve themselves or whatever but I think we're getting into the realm here of pharmacology and uh, we're getting into the realm of theoretics and I'm interested in the practicalities of real people yeah, yeah, what's happening to them and how can we help and support should them. have warned you how much of a nerd I was I, I will get you will, it won't be the last time in this conversation I get sucked in so yeah you're right no that's fair enough we'll talk about that um with regards to the the service the, the, the circumstances people find themselves in, are there any dispositions amongst individuals or groups that might then, that, that the data has shown that, that that then means that they are vulnerable to dependence and addiction? Uh, sorry, I'll just use dependence. That's fine. Um, yes, obviously, if you've got a history of drug misuse, younger days perhaps, uh, mental health, uh, there's a list of issues that predispose people to uh, more likely to be suffering from uh, dependence. And does it, I mean, because we want to make sure that we don't, no one should ever paint in too broad a brush and therefore uh, consider it to be a category that therefore they don't prescribe or shouldn't, should be trying to de-escalate that conversation. But if someone is co- is considering usage of opiates be that in an inappropriate context, but also happens to be a 20-a-day a admittedly addicted smoker... Um, does that sort of disposition to addiction sort of mean that they are more vulnerable to a different substance? Uh, I'm not aware of smoking causing that, but certainly uh, cocaine or misuse of other drugs in the past has. We've talked a lot about addiction and dependence, but I just wanted to bring the conversation to the fact that actually what we're looking at here is harms to a patient and dependence and addiction, if you like, is only one element of harm. These drugs are extremely harmful in that they actually lose concentration, you're more sort of addicted to falls, um, sexual dysfunction, uh, more prone to infections. Uh, there are many, many side effects. Dependence is only one part of that, right. and you come across that when you try to come off it. Actually, those that are on the drugs are often suffering from major side effects that they don't realise are belonging to the drug. And ironically, some of them can cause side effects that actually, the very thing they're trying to cure, which is often the case with medicines, you can have hyper heightened uh, awareness of pain itself. So um, hyperanalgesia, it's called. So you can be very sensitive to pain. And that could be part of the drug 
rather than the condition. So people go along think, believing this is actually curing them and giving them some benefit. And when actually you explain the number of adverse effects and potential harms these medicines are doing, they say, I suffer from that. Oh, yes, I have that. Yes, I have that. And then you start to talk about things like sexual dysfunction and, and infections. And I think, gosh, maybe I really don't want to take this. So dependence is only one part of the harms picture for these individuals. And we mm. need to start thinking about the benefit and harms balance for each individual. That's what we're duty-bound to do, to redress that, because I think we've been dressing these painkillers up for many, many years as something that will benefit them and get rid of their pain. And we know that in chronic pain, number one, it doesn't get rid of the pain. We've been lying, although we didn't know we were. <laughs> you know, in, in good faith, you know, we thought it was the best thing to do because we know it works in acute pain. We've been, you know, assuming that it is benefiting them and the individuals have been assuming that too and we've not been playing high enough to the harms mm. we're not explaining that actually this can cause constipation respiratory depression you know there's lots of things and if you think about the risk some of these very vulnerable people the risk of falls or the confusion especially when mixed with other drugs as well uh, that's a very common problem for a lot of people Mm. And we're not doing them a service. And so what are the sort of, uh, what is the scale of the fight, shall we say, then? When we, ana when we analyse the factors affecting, the, say, in the UK, what do, we, what do we think that the sort of population level numbers would be? Um, I think everybody in primary care is working on that issue right now because there's so much pressure and so much awareness of these medicines and the harms which have just come to light and we've realised and we're now pushing that message down at grassroots level. So anybody who's a healthcare professional, I think, will be starting to look at, if they haven't, they will be, they'll be incentivised to look at the number of patients in their surgeries who are on this kind of drugs. So they will know the numbers mm. and uh, I think every um, primary care GP practice will have quite a lot of people who they might want to consider reviewing their opiate prescribing. Mm. But we need to be careful, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, that that doesn't mean to say they stop everything immediately. We need to treat people on an individual basis. We need to support them. We need to help them get better. And of course, people in pain are in chronic pain. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult, long-term, it's a very difficult long-term condition. So we need to make sure we hold people's hand. We work with them together to work the best way to improve their health and that we actually say, explain what the harms are rather than just, this is dangerous, I'm going to stop this, I'm not allowed to prescribe this anymore. So That's definitely, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into that and, and using some examples to probably flesh that out that we were talking about earlier. How do we identify someone that might benefit from deprescription? Does it work? And, and where, where might that angle be? Before we then think about some of the examples we're, we're going to talk about where it might not be appropriate. But what, what, cause, because yeah, it's another buzzword that's kind of cropped up, I thought we could maybe try and visit that deprescription as to trying to work out its indication in your practice when a classic example of where that would, would occur on opiates. Deprescription, and it is, a, it is a buzzword at the moment, but actually it just means not giving something that doesn't work or not giving something that you don't get more benefit than harm. And again, this is nothing new here. Uh, this is a little common bit, sense. It's a just common <laughs> sense, absolutely. So who will benefit? Well, first of all, we know that uh, of all the people in long-term conditions, chronic pain, who are receiving opiates, only at best three people out of ten some say only one out of 10 will get relief from their pain longer term. They might get initial relief, but those that have been on it for years will realise they're not actually curing their pain. It's not receiving, you're not getting any benefit. And actually, at best, 
people receive only about 50% pain relief. What we do know is that eight people out of 10 are likely to suffer some, be suffering some sort of adverse effect. So the first thing is, who would benefit? You need to have a conversation with them. You might want to start with those that are on the highest over, dose of opiates. And there's been a lot in the media about where do we start. And, and I know uh, my primary care colleagues are, are doing searches around who are who, are, who is on more than the equivalent of 120 milligrams of morphine. Uh, to start, that's where the kind of biggest harms supposedly are occurring. But actually, that's an arbitrary figure. And people's individual variation is very high. So people on lower doses may well benefit from having deprescribed. People on higher doses might be getting some benefit, and we might have to deprescribe more slowly. If you explain and ask them, are you getting any real benefit? From my experience, and I've been talking to people in chronic pain for some time now, a lot of them say, no, it, it doesn't do me any good. If you explain, or not enough, and if you explain some of the adverse effects, they realise they're suffering from some of those, and actually you give them the choice. We now know this is not, you know, we realise it's not causing you much benefit. We know the harms now and the potentials for addiction in the future. Because actually, people's doses just start to escalate. If you become tolerant to it, then you need to increase the dose and increase the dose, and the side effects and the harms get greater and greater. And if you start to explain that, most people you can bring with you. Uh, so anybody who's long-term opiates could benefit potentially from having it deprescribed. It's a question of discussing that risk-benefit with them. And also, if they are a, you know, a chronic pain sufferer, discussing other ways to replace that. We don't want to leave people high and dry. But we know now that physiotherapy, like yourself, and psychological interventions and pacing and various other support mechanisms will help as much, if not more, or more than pain. So we need to make sure that we replace one thing with another. If people just think they're just taking away my painkillers, they don't care about me and I'm going to suffer pain, they will suffer pain. There's a mass massive psychological component. I mean, I think the short answer to your question, Jack, and I'm, I'm sorry I've gone, is anybody on long-term conditions, anybody on a multiple of drugs needs to have the benefit and risk of that drug evaluated on a regular basis. Well, that, that's, what, that's what I'm finding particularly interesting then in there is that it's, it's pretty much anyone and everyone needs to have the conversation. And, and, and that's why, I mean, because, and if I was to, I imagine, because I'm not going to, because I think I know the answer is, if I was to press you as to, yeah, but which specifics, it'd be like, well, <laughs> I'd have to give individual examples because fundamentally you could have a conversation with two different people that have been on opiates long term of different dosage, one of which it might be like, actually, this is, this is fairly appropriate and it might, or we'd have to, we could try it, but tinker it down um, slightly. And in another one, it would be a really appropriate thing for them to, you know, if anything, when they go through, they're ticking all the boxes for side effects, but none of the boxes for it actually being effective. And it's actually the best thing they could do. And those two individuals would be hard to tease apart without that conversation getting into the details on their individual story. Absolutely. And they've got to want to, really. Uh, the best results is if they want to. If you just, you know, and we can we can guide them as healthcare professionals. We can guide them. We can say our knowledge of pain has changed and it has massively in the last five to ten years. So, you know, we can explain how we now understand pain. We can give them uh, clips so we can give them information from, you know, YouTube clips and information to help them understand what's going on in their body. And if you do understand the, 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 the messages from the CNS and how we need to kind of think about it as a nervous problem uh, that we can control and, and 
and, and deal with in other ways and that the harms these medicines are ca uh, causing, then, you know, we're halfway through the battle because pain has a massive psychological component. So, yeah, so an understanding of the complexity of pain as a, as a broader phenomenon Absolutely. means that you're never going to get stuck in the weeds on the chemical physiology. Yeah. Uh, as, as a component and sometimes an important thing that in the, especially in, in acute and subacute pain valuable but fundamentally we, we, we don't want to get lost in that um, yeah. because I think that that's one of the things that especially in advanced practice within my own profession uh, I've noticed there are different different trends in which decreased biomedicalism on a structural sense you know we've got we, we historically we got lost in anatomy then we got lost in biomechanics and, and sort of narrowly um, corners of a, of a particular person's story and we kind of recognise that that was quite narrow and quite uh, blinkered um, yet as we sort of ventured into new frontiers within advanced practice in physiotherapy meant that uh, medicines management and I mean, for me it was via via injections meant that you needed to at least comprehend what you were what you what substances and understanding the pharmacology better than the, mm. from nothing um, but then if you got too stuck in those weeds, you ended up being sort of making the same mistakes again. But instead of anatomy and biomechanics, it was physiology and pharmacology and stuff, mm -hmm. which speaks to some of what you said before is what you end up being too nerdy in that direction. You lose the patient in yes. the whole story. And um, so on, on that, then, if we can think of a caricature example um, of a patient that you would see that would benefit from a, and we won't even call it deprescription, but a conversation that leads to a cleaning up of that script and mm. a decrease in the amount of opiates they take mm. over a course mm. of time. Can we think about what that, what that person looks like in a, in a profile sense, but also then what that would look like in terms of how long the tapering process is, what would go on alongside mm. it, would you be making referrals, etc.? Before we do that, Jack, can yeah. I just just have a, a little word and just say how different pain is from most of the, most of the long-term conditions? And I think this is where people fall into a, li a little bit of a trap or they, they think, oh, yes, another long-term... I can treat it like I can treat diabetes, like I can treat hypertension, like I can treat something like that, where actually you're telling the patient what you're doing to them to avoid an outcome. And that outcome might be a heart attack, a death, uh, complications from, from blood sugar. But the outcome from this one is the patient's perception. The outcome is what the patient believes... So this is why it's so very different. If you're in pain, if people say they're in pain, they are. You can't say, well, I'm yeah. sorry, the evidence says you're not. <laughs> you sure. know, you can't do that. Pain is a very much a personal thing. This is why in this field more than any other, we have to work with the patient to find a solution that is best in terms of outcomes for them. Uh, so, you are, you're, so you're meaning to make that distinction from, say, I feel like my blood sugars are high. They're not. You've got an objective, yes, readable demonstration of that falsity. And not only that, but the patient doesn't suffer in the same way. They will suffer long term. Right. And whilst we've got the, the problem with suffering long term with addiction, we're trying to relieve the pain. The pain is immediate. The pain is probably the most critical and difficult thing for that individual at that time. Right. Okay. So it's, it's very different from, you know, uh, having the evidence base around uh, avoiding cardiovascular events. Uh, statins prescribing for example or sure. hypertension or all that stuff about atrial fibrillation and all that kind of stuff these are hard facts we know if we treat so many patients then so many people will benefit this is the cost this is the population health let's do it it makes sense and we're telling people what we're doing and these are the benefits to explain it but in pain it's them that tells you whether it's working or not that, that tells you whether it's pain or not we can't turn around and say well the evidence cool. basis is you're not cool. we, all we, we can explain that it's likely to have a strong psychological component and why that is. And if they can buy into that, then hopefully they can buy into the fact that through those kind of mechanisms, they can work through other ways to try and relieve their pain. Yeah. So, you know, um, we've got a whole, a whole host of 
education to do, and maybe we can come on to that later in terms of population, uh, public health Absolutely, yeah. But let's get back to the question. No, no, I'm I'm, I'm glad you... That was definitely an appropriate place for us to to, to visit that caveat because I think that that's something that does get get lost again. There's there's several different parts of this process where you can end up getting lost in the weeds. And so every you're right to then put that into its context. And it's fascinating as well how... I think people sometimes think that the, the, the pharmacy broadly, not necessarily as a profession, but almost like a, like a, a discipline, would probably be the better way of me thinking about this, is that, that that is an area in which is more transactional. So people, if you think about the, the spectrum of uh, psychology, less than psychiatry, but psychology and counselling is almost, that, that, is, that is wordy, it is slow stream, it is, it is, and even neuro rehab would be another one, where you, you know, it's known to be of a slow pace, meticulous in that, but in a slow pace sense. And then you've got more transactional GP pharmacy um, and, and, and certain interventions, injections that fall under that, as well as some manual therapies within my profession, where it feels more interventional, more transactional. And so... I think it'd be interesting to people, and it is interesting hearing about it, is how it's it's definitely that the, the, a contemporary and sensible and modern and individualised approach to these things involves bringing pharmacy towards that understanding someone's lived experience, their narrative and things, which we've spoken a lot about on this podcast, narrative-based medicine, and the, the fact that we should all be moving that way. Mm. I think that people, to, to hear that even in these instances in which there is a, a potentially a hard and fast script to be written, uh, that that's still going that way, and it needs to be understood and not be a two-minute thing in a in a in a corner of a of a boot shop with a partition wall around it. You know, it's a very different experience, I think. Yeah, and I, and I agree, and I think uh, you know a lot of pharmacists are are very transactional, and you know we we're the ones that that shout about the numbers needed to treat and the evidence base behind this and the nice guidance about this and this is the way to do it and and actually you know mm. we are the ones that are, you know are very transactional. So this is partly why pain is an area that fascinates me so much because yeah. I think it moves it moves away from that. Having said that, the medicines management world is becoming much more patient focused and with uh, polypharmacy medication reviews now being a new GP, GP contract, the PCN DES, uh, a major part of that to get pharmacists to do more medication reviews and actually we do realise the patient has got to be the centre of that so I think the whole of the healthcare profession is beginning to realise it's not so much about you know of course, we need to work within the evidence base, absolutely. And the numbers need to treat, numbers need to harm. Work, certainly work for cardiovascular disease and for many areas, but in pain, it's a bit different. Mm, yeah, that subjectivity that's just inherent to the, yeah. the entire conversation. It's not just part of it like the yeah, other things. So, yeah. No, fascinating. So yeah, like if you don't mind, we will double back to, to yeah. me saying, let's can we can try and create almost a caricature patient yeah. in your clinic of, of which might be someone that would be perfect for what would be consider a deep prescribing of opioids? Uh, well, I think anybody should have all their medicines reviewed uh, on a regular basis. And if they're on uh, an opiates, uh, then um, then that should happen too. Uh, I just want to say also, I keep sidetracking, but it's not just opiates. You know, we've got the crisis around the opioid crisis, but the gabapentinines are right behind them. And the mm. harms coming from them are as as bad. And this is why they turned into a control drug a year or two ago. Uh, we're beginning to recognise that. And if you look at the increase in number of deaths from those, um, that's increased 30-fold for um, pregabalin, 
eightfold gabapentin, gabapentin uh, much smaller numbers. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, all the all the medicines that should the risk and benefits should be should be uh, analysed. Who would benefit most? The the thing is, we're we're running we're running because of the crisis word that we started this conversation about, and it's raising people's awareness. People do need to have their awareness raised, not least of which the people themselves. Having said that, you know, they have their place. And actually, uh, anybody who's been taking it for a long time, certainly anybody who's on, on more than 120 milligrams of morphine, arbitrary figure, but actually we do know that more harms cause the higher dose that, that you're on. Um, they would certainly benefit from it from a conversation. But they should be receiving, people should be receiving increasingly medication review through their general practice on an annual basis. And if there aren't any kind of opiates, we should be looking at that under scrutiny saying, is it still, is it still, is it still benefiting you? Uh, have you suffered from any of these side effects? Could you, be, and if you list it, they might not realise what's being, they're suffering a side effects. You know, what's the risk balance for you? We know some of these, if you've got chronic pain, you're like, likely to have to increase the dose. And if you increase the dose, there's a risk of potential for, for addiction. I'm talking about low dose weak opiates which I get is what you're see more likely to see more in a in a physiotherapy. Yeah. I don't think you're pushing me to kind of say these people should and these people shouldn't. And I'm reluctant to do that. Can you tell that? I can. <laughs> and I'm and I'm happy for you to slip and slide a little bit, but I'm gonna try once more. because <laughs> I, 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 I so I totally get you're not gonna get me trying to draw really sharp lines on this. But I suppose yes. I'm just interested and this is why I'm admittedly describing it as a caricature. Are we talking I want to think about the, the just on on a on a numbers level. If we had to play a statistical game and think like, what is the are the, are these middle aged working age people typically? Is there a, is there a difference in a, in a gender balance of, of particularly people that sit across from you in a, in in your clinic? Are we are we thinking about people that are on? It's one of three medicines they're taking, or is it more typically one of fifteen? That's the sort of thing I'm meaning. Is if are there certain ways in which we can categorise this as to be think of what what the what the typical patient that, that you would benefit from? I think it's very difficult because the patients I see have been referred to a, a chronic pain clinic through Connect Health, so um, they are long term pain sufferers. Yeah. Whereas the people that your audience are likely to come across, I'm guessing, in physiotherapy, is your average person. Uh, I'm guessing. But they, well, that includes, admittedly, I, it would include, I mean, any, anything from ankle sprain through to persistent okay. low back pain of 20 years origin, of which would probably map onto okay. what you're describing. And also people with multimorbidities that also happen to have an, o, an OANE. So I think that, you, you know, it's probably you know, quite broad. Yeah. Okay. Is there a typical picture? No, I've had people from 35 to 70, long, uh, older. Uh, I've had people who are only on a, a few things, of which there's painkillers, to people who are on a whole multitude of things, complex stuff, including mm. diabetes medicines, of which there are many, and you're always on cardiovascular stuff as well. So I don't think... Uh, I think generally... Uh, there's a pattern that maybe women suffer more than men, but I, I, I don't know. I'd need to look at my facts on that. You probably know as, as well as I do in terms of physiotherapy. I don't know. But I, I think it covers the broad range. I don't think you can focus in on terms of a particular patient type. I guess what you're trying to ask me is, what can you and your audience do if you come across somebody? Where should the alarm bells be ringing? And I think my answer to that would be, if anybody comes to you who is on chronic pain long-term painkillers and opioids then i think providing you know um supporting the national campaign if you like and suggesting that perhaps the physiotherapy they might want to have consider 
support that whole psychological shift in terms of, you know, maybe this can help with next time you have a medication review on your pain colours. You might want, now that we're doing physio, now you've started these exercises, now we're doing some extra, is this, you know, maybe this could be built into your pain management programme. I don't suggest that people who are not experienced in medication review take on this challenge. I think it needs to be seen in the ring along with all the other medications they're taking because there is a lot of factors to consider. So I don't think you need to take that burden on, but you can actually uh, support what else, what is happening elsewhere because what it really needs to do is pay, change people's view around what pain is and what can what needs to be done about their pain. Now, if they're undertaking physio, they're already actually doing some exercise. They're doing something, presumably, about their pain so that supports a conversation to say, well, maybe you might want to consider next time you do have a review or is anybody looking at your medicines to kind of support their thinking that perhaps they might want to decrease their pain medicines as well. Anything more specific than that would be quite cavalier, wouldn't it, really? From I a, think so, a, yeah. A, a, from a, from a, a you know, only very semi-trained, uh, obviously someone that's got an interest and might be on the right lines, but you don't want to be too... You don't want to be because you might otherwise scare them if you're thinking that that's they wouldn't go for said review if they thought that something useful was going to be taken away. And I think we need to learn our lessons about causing unnecessary harms and causing you know with the best intentions. Let's face it, from the WHO you know um, pain ladder in the 1980s, we've caused this crisis Mm -hmm. because we didn't know any better. And I think we need to we need to be a little bit careful that we, we we. I think the best that you can do is just support people to to review their medicines, to get them to think about, oh, we're doing this. Maybe this maybe this could mean you can come off some of your medicines. Maybe next time you might want to review your painkillers. I don't know. I wouldn't think you could go any further than that conversation than to feed, drip feed the fact that actually something else might replace medication. And that would be brilliant to help sure. support that. Well, uh, and that's that's a good point as well, because the, the, the ways in which we can mitigate lurching from, from mistake to mistake is to, to try and see a bigger picture and to not just think that um, think that this is something that it was it was such an inherent bad that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Uh, yeah. An expression I'm told I overuse on this podcast, but uh, forgive me, it seemed appropriate here. I saw that someone had said there's like a hat trick of public health mistakes that people were using as, I don't know if it was a lecture, and there was named the opioid, opioid uh, overprescription. They, they mentioned the demonization of dietary fats, and they mentioned diesel cars. <laughs> as examples of yes. how the science then caught up yes. with the fact that we were too matter-of-fact. There was something there, there was a kernel of truth to the fact that yes. the, each of these things had something that, that moved us in that direction but we got carried away on the theme thought that we were somewhere factual that wasn't going to shift yes. and then the literature didn't about turn to some extent and we realized we got carried away on a theme and so like what you're de- you're describing there and, and you you know to profile beyond what you've described would be inappropriate and i totally understand that and, and that's because i suppose i'm always looking for when listeners are thinking, well, what are, the, what are my telltale signs and symptoms? It's I mean, the, the obvious answer in this instance is consider it with everyone. And I, and I like that. But then also it was just trying to work out as to if they were wanting to sharpen those things. They're on the lookout for all sorts of stuff. And so it was just one of the things that might be on the, uh, the, the 20th patient of that day. What might just make sure that it lets their alarm bells ring. And I think we've been able to give a bit of guidance to that. But admittedly, it needs to be broad. Because any more specific, you mm. would probably miss mm. stuff. If you were mm. thinking that there was this really obvious uh, obvious person that was going to be waving a flag walking in, it's not the case. No, it's not the case. And, and, and you only see a certain element of their medication, obviously, in the pain medication, yeah. that you need to consider the whole. You need to consider... All that they're on, um, right. and I think we need to we need to educate 
the whole, you know, the whole population in terms of uh, expecting less from medicines to cure their long-term conditions and more what else they can do for their own health. And we've got the evidence base here around diabetes and pre-diabetes. We know that people can do an awful lot with exercise. This is your field, an awful lot with exercise and diet to to avoid that national crisis. And boy, we have a national crisis there. So, uh, you know, there's a lot that we need to... Get empower people to think about other ways to improve their health rather than I'm just going to live the life the way I'm going to and a, a pill will solve it. Mm. Uh, it. It doesn't work that any, that way anymore. Uh, we need to uh, engage people and educate people and get people thinking about tackling long-term conditions, particularly pain, but also other long-term conditions, hypertension, diabetes being examples, uh, uh, through their own their own mechanisms. I definitely want to get into some of the social and policy implications of that, so make sure I do get there. But I think it would be smart for us to, to, to finish there. I want to try and use another example of where... Um, where you feel that things we might have got carried away, um, and um, I think we've we've spoken off mic. I heard on your on your lectures, and we've also sort of touched on them already in this conversation that there's there are examples where uh, one's been swapped in for another in a cavalier way. We've also got examples where um, it's actually appropriate usage of, of, of opioids that are then are then being seen as being priority one, two, and three to take them off when actually there's plenty of more bigger fish to fry. And actually when someone's participating in a rehab process, that's probably an area where it's less of a priority. So could we visit those, the, the examples in which it's uh, maybe the, the pendulum has swung a bit far? Yeah, I mean, I, we were talking earlier, and I don't know if this is the appropriate time to bring it, but, but you know, in terms of we've got an opiate crisis, we've got the, the, the finger being pointed from all sorts of directions on yeah. opiates. And my concern is that, you know, uh, I spoke to somebody this morning uh, in terms of what can we do for these people's pain and uh, how can we support them? Well, the ideal is obviously in terms of non-pharmacological interventions and we could talk about the limitations of that and we can start education people not on an individual basis but on a population basis. We can talk about that. But actually, you know, uh, is there a risk that we're now going to put more people back on non-steroidals? And, uh, you know, I was... I was running around 10 years ago, banging my fist on the table about diclofenac. I was, you know, one of the medicines management leaders telling about cardiovascular risk before we realised about that. And we do know that non-steroids are really harmful drugs. We know that one of the highest drugs that put people in hospital, they've got massive gastrointestinal, cardiovascular and renal problems. So, you know, these are not particularly nice drugs, but are we replacing one with another? You know, we need to actually, uh, we need to be careful we don't, uh, run scared in one area and cause more of a crisis in another area. Mm. And so NSAIDs being, being an area where we just need to make sure we're not clumsily lurching back to, to that. Also gabapentinoids you mentioned before, yeah. that seems to be, and, and, and um, my colleague when I, uh, today, Mark, uh, Mark Reed, our clinical lead here at Choose Health had said to me, about he intermittently looks on openprescription.com oh, about yeah. the comparative use of, of different drugs and things like that, which is a fascinating. I had been on and, and he showed me a few examples before we came on air today. And it was this idea that sometimes we might then, whatever's on vo- in vogue, and it was then seen as one of the solutions to the opioid crisis to some, was to transpose in gabapentinoids, um, yeah. almost like for like. <gasps> 
Yeah, and not, uh, <laughs> you, you've shaken your head. Oh no, no, no! I I haven't heard that because I think you know certainly the medicine management world people do understand the dangers of okay. of, of uh, gabapentinoids. Um, that and they use slightly differently. They tend to work more on nerve pain and uh, um, diabetes type neuropathy neuropathies. Uh, but yeah, very dangerous drugs. Okay. Gosh, yes, you know I I, I wouldn't like to see uh, all the opiates being replaced by gabapentinoids. I mean, no. it's the next one. It's the next Next one coming after opioids, okay. it certainly is. Prescribing .net, open prescribing .net is really fascinating, and it's great now that everybody has access mm. to looking at that data. The problem is you're only looking at what you're looking at. Sure. So if you start to look at opioids and see the graph going up or down, you're not seeing a similar graph elsewhere for a different thing. So you need to be. Uh, a little bit careful yeah don't get too stuck in those numbers because you're always going to be not placed perfectly within a, a broader context because that's obviously very messy and, and no one could ever understand everything at any one time what's the one of the things that i think it'd be worth us doing because just before we went on air i sort of gave an example of a classic a classic circumstance of a patient that we would see in a sort of msk sports medical type context where um say an otherwise well 30 some year old person comes in with a not necessarily even a sporting injury but let's say that they've developed a back problem back and leg pain that they're struggling with they've got no frank neurology and something that's sort of with appropriate medicines and rehabilitation that that would be especially in the first instance the smart move to try and uh, settle down this back pain and sciatica and i've noticed that a few years ago it would be something that if they came in and they were taking sort of a mid-dose cocodamol that that, especially alongside participating in a sensible management plan, they're starting to pace themselves appropriately, making sensible adjustments, be that at work or in the gym. They're working with us to scale their functional ability. They're ticking a lot of the boxes with regards to what would be concept, contemporary good practice, best uh -huh. practice. However, I would say that more recently I've noticed, be that amongst GPs or some of my colleagues, or even sometimes when I'm giving out uh, sort of lectures, advice, workshops, is that people consider that in a circumstance like that, one of the almost flags that would be raised on the subjective assessment is that that cocodamol is a, is a problem within that story. And so in an otherwise well person with no history of dependence, is this an example of where that's, that's, that's silly prioritising or is there something in that? I think we need to take a focus off the cocodamol and say so the focus is on the pain. We've got the patient here. The focus is the patient is in pain. What we need to do is try and help work with that person to live with or manage that pain and manage their expectations. We haven't talked a lot about that because it's about managing expectations. People can't expect to be pain-free. So we need to explain that. Uh, so it's about working with that individual to manage their health the best they can. It's not the cocodamol that's the prey, that's the, that's the problem. It's the patient. So the fact that they've come to physio is the first step. And actually what we need to do is explain, maybe that's not your job, maybe it's somebody else to explain the potential harms of codeine if we don't, uh, if we escalate the dose. And a small dose is still fine. And you know, for some people, that is a, a significant benefit. So uh, we need to make sure we keep that under review and actually make sure the risks and benefits. And hopefully you'll be able to work through exercise and other support mechanisms for their pain that might replace that. But if you try that too early, if you say, this is the problem, we need to take that away, they're likely to uh, experience more pain. You're likely to lose them as an individual. It's got to come from them. Yeah, and in this instance, it's something that, you know, this, this is actually assisting their process and they're doing well with it. And, and also it's the intention of both parties, all parties, to get them 
from that that medication where it's appropriate. And often, uh, we when we talk when I talk to patients about managing their pain medicines, uh, we often take the approach of look, we'll do this, we'll keep this on. Uh, this is to, to so that you can engage in other mechanisms. So the first thing is a realization that medicines aren't the answer. Ding! If you've got that, you want to start of a winner. And if we explain that, if they buy into that, if they actually want to start changing it, then we can start to think about other ways we can start to help manage that pain, think about that pain, deal with the pain, and actually help them jointly to come off those medicines and replace it with something else. So it helps them get over that initial bit. So it's about helping them have enough pain so they can engage in physio and engage in other walking activities. Some people find it quite difficult to walk and they need to have painkillers so they can walk, so they can start to do the exercise. It's all starting the ball rolling. Or sleep, Mm. absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's that's fascinating. And I think you've you've nailed it as well with regards to the comprehension that this might be a jigsaw piece rather than the entire jigsaw puzzle. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that helps them come, well, what, what are the other pieces then? Well, yeah, we could yeah. talk a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Let me introduce you to my friend who's a, who's a physio. So, yeah, no, yes. that, that's, that's fantastic. One thing that um, I, I'm meaning to ask, and I don't know, it doesn't necessarily flow perfectly, but how appropriate are things like, well, opioids across the board, but cocodamols and, and tramadols are more likely to be used in this instance than, than the harder stuff, let's say, for PRN, so if someone was to have a, an acute incident in which they then might reach for it, if it's been effective, so the same character I've just made up before, mm-hmm. um, then resolves this problem but recognises cocodamol to be an effective thing that he doesn't notice any side effects majorly too, but it's effective for his pain, for pain relief, then sprains his ankle and a few days later needs some help getting back to work or whatever. How appropriate is it to use something like that on a PRN basis? Uh, it depends if they've got if they've got uh, prescribed as a PRN. I think it's important that whoever is in uh, is overall responsible for their medicines understands what they're taking and why. Mm. So clearly, if you've got something in your cupboard, I can't really condone it for a new condition, <laughs> bringing it out and trying it. Uh, however, uh, we're talking about reality, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Short term, for if you if you've got a, if you've got a sprained ankle, it's an acute pain, and and, and these kind of analgesias well, the are quite. Ankle problem, I could use as an example. Yeah, I suppose. and if, if that's anything a, like that, that kind of crops up. It, yeah, and they are they are good for acute pain. These things work short term. If they for a few days, for a week or so, then we shouldn't be stopping using these things if it helps people. Mm. If it helps people. Um, as I said, you know, I'm not sure I could uh, on air uh, condone um, <laughs> no, telling people to reach did. for the cupboard, see which ones they've got, and pop a bit yeah, of tramadol because that. Especially because would... you hear about people there. It's, <laughs> it's not just theirs, is it? It's like the, the family cabinet or whatever, and it's actually their late aunt's uh, old yeah. tramadol and stuff. So we're not, we're making this clear now, we're not condoning reaching for <laughs> Auntie May's uh, <laughs> old tramadol that's expired and you're trying to work out how short a date it is. We're not doing that, but what we are going to do instead is now move us on to some of the solutions and then that will i want to touch on the fact that one of the key i imagine to put words in your mouth because they're your words the solution really with at the heart of it on an individual level is to hear and elicit someone's individual story and narrative to try and work out where their medicines fit into that within the broader context of rehab engaging them in something as a matter of sort of replacement or participating them in some way in their own health care am i right in thinking that's at the heart of the individualized solution but we can't leave it there because responsibility does then lay within how that might apply within a wider 
uh, sorry, a narrow system locally and then also broadly into policy and how we might try and make some reforms. I overuse the word reform, admittedly, but what, what the chain might need to change. So what do you feel are your, the best solutions to these problems which we've discussed in the podcast? And I think the problem we have is that we've, uh, we're so now acutely aware of the problem and everybody is trying to solve it with limited armamentarium. We're trying to solve it from within the health service and I think we need to take the whole, con- the whole concept of pain and take it out there amongst the population. The people that we see, only the sharp end, the, very, the, the people who, are, who, are, uh, who come to us for help, we know there are figures out there of people, I can't remember, 40% of the population or something suffering from some sort of chronic pain in their lives. You know, the figure's probably better than me, I might be wrong, but certainly an awful lot of people out there. And I think we need to start getting people to think about pain differently, think about the solutions to pain, what it, chronic pain is and what it means. And I, I think we need more public health, public health type campaigns and I like to um, put the analogy of kind of our future tackling this around like like we do with antibiotics 10 years ago. Now we all used to expect that if you had a cough and a cold you'd go to your GP and you'd get an antibiotic and I think most people on the ground now realise that is not the case and that's been a slow long journey that we've taken the whole world with us and I was involved with commissioning uh, campaigns on the backs of buses and in bus stops and leaflets and and all the rest of it. And, it, you know, uh, and I think that in terms of pain, we need to do the same thing. We need to take it out of this happens in the consultation with your GP or your pharmacist only. This happens on the streets. We need to start thinking about uh, public health campaigns. There's been an, a very excellent initiative that we've talked about before, Jack, in, in, uh, in Australia called the Pain Revolution. And we're repeating some of that stuff in, in Lincolnshire with Connect Health in terms of having public engagement events, uh, engaging the population about what pain is and how you can deal with people and manage pain so that people start thinking to think about how they can manage pain how they can deal with pain without medicines and if you take as part of that message and if you expect a pill to cure it these are all harms this is the danger that's going to come that's going to come to light so we need to get that message out there in a kind of more accessible format rather than expect that difficult conversation to only happen when you have your medication review with your GP or with your pharmacist. So demedicalising pain or at least yeah. taking it outside of the medical institutions. There might be medical, there's always going to be some medical factors surrounding pain, um, but then also it doesn't necessarily need to be exclusively for surgery absolutely clinics they need to, they need to work in tandem this is sure. a this is a big problem so we yeah. need to have some big solutions sure. we can't expect uh, gps in their 10 minute appointment to start talking about the psychology of pain and uh, all the other things that the, mm. that, that, that that people can do and giving them hands-on experiments because this is for some people this is a massive change in culture shift so that's going to take a little bit of time i mean i just wanted to say also that you know in terms of the pain clinic that I work in, um, the other thing that we can do is to link it with physiotherapy, with psychology support, with pacing, with pain management programs. It's very difficult if you haven't got any other things in your armamentarium to help support people. And one of the things with that 
as a, as a service that they've uh, been vocal in saying has really helped them is that they've been able to join it up and that they've not got then the man in the room next door then dishing out interventions as if curative because the fact that you've been able to then have a conversation with someone about the fact that let's let's link this in let's get you some rehabilitation let's have a talk to a psychologist let's try and make sure that this is something that's um, participatory collaborative rather than interventional you're not getting undermined by an anaesthetist waving an epidural and, and yeah. suggesting it's going to be curative next door. But the reality across the country is, unfortunately, that that is still happening. So the actual um, the, the end game is something that you're describing where GPs are able to signpost into services that are appropriately holistic. Mm. But whilst we're in this weird transition where mm. you've got good practice, but you've also got poor practice sometimes coexisting across postcodes, do you have any sort of tips and tricks with regards to advocacy? Hopefully we've got a, we've got a fairly learned audience that want to try and initiate positive change, mm. but sometimes are getting taken out at the knees by, by their, their colleagues elsewhere, or those that aren't quite learned in this direction. Do you have any sort of tips and tricks for how to bridge that gap? Uh, I think the more we talk about this and the more it, it raises awareness, then the more people will uh, come on board. And, right. and again, I go back to the analogy 10 years ago with the antibiotic story. You know, some people realised, got it, and we used to talk about the numbers needed not to treat NNNT, <laughs> where you had to refuse a certain number of patients a certain number of times before they actually understood that they didn't, didn't <laughs> right. need to come when they had a cold to get an antibiotic. And actually, that was scuppered by your GP down the road or your colleague who didn't believe it and would get their prescription. So you really have to... We all have to work together. And the more people that start getting this message rather than, you know, Dr. Bloggs didn't give my antibiotic. Oh, he was bad, whereas Dr. Brown did. You now, you know, somebody is giving me this message about uh, about analgesics and the next person's giving me the same message. Mm. So people are starting to get the same message all the time. We can't be responsible for other people's actions who yeah, scupper it. Yeah. But I think the more we talk about it, and again, the more we start to raise awareness on a population perspective, then even the laggards, as we call them, will start to fall in line. And of course, there are beginning to be pressures and incentives from the Department of Health NHS England to address this area. So that message is coming down hard and fast. And we should do a really entertaining podcast and share it far and wide. Is that what we're thinking? Uh, maybe something Let's like do that. Something yeah. like that. Um, on a social level, beyond it with regards to policy and how it can escalate up the chain and stuff so we don't make sure we're speaking just just locally is a lot of the things that we're suggesting do admittedly uh, if, if you've got we do have a few commissioners listening where they sometimes then get a bit twitched about the fact that a lot of the suggestions are what that we're making do involve a lot of some front-end sort of almost talking therapies longer longer assessment processes where we're, we're sort of really making sure we um, don't generalize and, and, and appropriately individualize medicines it's something that can't necessarily be they, they love the idea of i forget missing the word sorry this is a edit point i'm gonna need what's um <laughs> People love the idea of stratification into into subgroups, but then struggle to recognise that true stratification, if it's done properly, can then truly end up being the N of one, the individualisation. Yes. And so the commissioners sort of get a bit twitched about the fact that the only way to truly individualise is to afford more time front end to decrease yeah. the end. And so how what what sort of solutions and system changes would you propose for us to try to better um, decrease their, alleviate their concerns in the short term, but also how, what what sort of would you like a the future to be? If we were to catch up in ten years' time, what would the landscape be in terms of how these these systems are set up for people with persistent pain? 
I think that um, we need to think of it as a public health issue. And I, I think this is a, a good analogy we're talking about, you know, loss of weight, we're talking about exercise, we're talking about... And where does treatment you know, start to interplay with public health and self-support? And what do we as NHS, the NHS provide in terms of funded versus what people can do themselves? And I think if you're in chronic pain, there's a massive incentive to do something yourself. So I think that we shouldn't feel to... Uh, I do think we need to offer more alternative therapies, and that's what Connect Health are doing. They're offering uh, different different uh, services, different offerings, and we need to do that. But we, you know, in terms of the potential to support Pilates, uh, um, uh, walking, uh, there are all sorts of other things that there's a whole spectrum of acupuncture, there's a whole spectrum of things that people might want to plug in, some of which might be available. And we mustn't beat ourselves up that we can't offer all that. Because, you know, we have the same debate about healthy eating. Uh, but if we start to think of it as coming more in the paradigm of the public health agenda, rather than the you know, the mm. NHS and treatment uh, agenda, mm. NHS England ag agenda. So if we think of it as more um, a public health issue, there's quite a lot we can do in terms of putting some more funding, like the five-year forward view, upstream on this. Mm. So we can actually uh, uh, address it uh, before it gets into a health crisis, if you like. Sure. One of the things that I've come to realise when I think about what is it about this conversation? I always want to make sure that there's no disparity between the conversations that I have in circumstances like this. And what is it about this description of, of, of best practice that I'm personally not complying with? You know, what is it that's the sort of, the, if there's a gap between what we're talking about here and talking a good game on air, and when I see a patient, what is it that I maybe don't necessarily engage with as well? And I think one of the gaps I'm noticing, if I'm honest, is that there's, this is a process that I think I'm fairly compliant with when a patient comes to recognise pain as being uh, a core to their problem rather than a symptom of something else. And then I think that that's one of the things that I personally have certain strategies that I'm trying to help them to understand that their, that their pain as a long-term condition is something almost of a, not an entity in itself, but something that fundamentally is, is not necessarily tethered to being a symptom of something that can otherwise be solved upstream. Do you do you recognise that distinction, and 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 if so, do you have any sort of tips and tricks as to how you might help a patient get there? Or sometimes does it is it sort of thing where you have to that needs to they're not almost ready for for you if they perceive it to be something that needs to be solved. It's simply a symptom of a problem upstream, and that mm -hmm. you know they're, they're talking to you saying, "I don't know why we're having this conversation before I've seen the surgeon again," or something like that. I just yeah. wondered if you recognise any of those. Features. Yeah, I do. and everybody's different, and I think that's why we need to all work together. All health professionals need to work together. Right. Um, so everybody comes to that point, and I think you're right. It is a it is a, a turning point when somebody has to accept that. All the things that can be done in terms of acute pain or looking for a cause or surgery, all those things have been sorted out. We have to accept this now as chronic pain. Now, obviously, the definition is more than three months. Uh, you know, we, we know what the definition is, more than three, three months of chronic pain. Mm. Uh, but people will come to that point at different points. And, and a lot of the people I speak to have been through road traffic accidents or whatever. There's been an initial cause and they've been suffering with this pain for 10 years or so. There has to be a point and we will help them come to it where they think, Everything that can be done has been. I now have to treat this as chronic pain and think of it differently. Mm. And I think if we can help people on that journey, and there's a lot of people in this space, where instead of going around being angry, expecting somebody else to take it around, take it away, we realise that actually our bodies are complex, and actually 
something else has gone wrong. You know, see the understanding chronic pain in less than five minutes, YouTube. Mm. Something else is now taking place and we actually have to treat that as chronic pain and therefore we need to approach it with a different mindset. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's such a... I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone in in noticing that, that distinction. Um, I just think that it it's the bit of this conversation that somewhat disheartens me a little bit because of the fact that we know that we need to try and engage those conversations mm. sooner, but sometimes they're, they're, they're easiest when people have almost ticked all the other boxes. It's almost as if there's this process where part of the motivation for us doing this and part of the reason we can get this up the agenda is because the health economics play out on the yeah. savings could be so significant. I think it's one of the things that helps economists and politicians sort of pick their, pick, prick their ears up a little bit. However... I think in our heart of hearts, we kind of know that there's a significant chunk of the people that could otherwise be part of those savings that almost need to have done the shopping and almost sometimes need to have done some of the suffering. And that, that, that hurts a little bit, admittedly, for me, when I think about the, the, the good we could do for those people if we, if we could um, help, help change their minds sooner. Um, how likely that is, I get a bit. That's where I'm more of a sceptic. Yeah, and I think people will buy into it in different ways. What we can tell them is, you know, how good the, the shopping shelf is and we can give them <laughs> some facts and figures about that. Sure. So we can okay. start to give them, some, we've got some real facts. We know that, you know, not many people, this will, you know, this is unlikely to, to cause benefit but if you were in massive chronic pain wouldn't you try everything else first Absolutely, you know no, pain that. is pain is difficult from my perspective from a medicine's perspective the interesting thing is at that point where you put this is chronic pain you need to start to have the conversation that and actually your medicines are unlikely to do anything for you and they're more likely to cause you harm mm. or you know let's review it because actually the harms are likely to start to outweigh the benefits, if not now, in a year, in two years. And we can stop that from happening now by having a different approach. Yeah, and I think that, I think that um, from, from your perspective as well, I think it's going to be, there's, there's a more obvious sort of scientific, for want of a better term, line in which you'll need to draw those those parameters because we understand the medicines to be of a very different effect not just on mechanism but in outcome. Yeah. And that means that compared to in, in physiotherapy sometimes with Rightly, I think, more reluctant to consider three months to be a really relevant line. With a three-month three month specific, uh, specific occurring sport and injury, you know, three months worth of knee pain 20 miles into a marathon, you've got a very different f- yeah. behaviour than, yeah. than you have three months of persistent neuropathic pain. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and, and it's uh, and depending on the context in which it's placed. And so, but but in, a me- in, a medicines, uh, in a medicines front, it's definitely something that uh, we need to make. That line needs to be drawn yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And those conversations need to be had yeah. within within that like you would any other medicine which is absolutely. what you've you've absolutely uh, brought brought home with examples from from antibiotics through to, to diabetes meds and, and uh, statins and the like so it's been a real journey thank you so much is there anything else that you feel you want us to to, to mention that we haven't yet no uh, the only thing is there are some useful resources that we can put people point people to and in, in the opioids aware campaign the you know faculty of um, um, pain management along with um, public health england have got some great resources there's uh, living well with pain. There's pain concern. There's quite a new, quite a few things on the internet, and I did allude to. There's a few YouTube clips that help to explain yeah. chronic pain, like understanding chronic pain in less than five minutes. Um, so I think there's quite a few resources that we can point people to that they can access to help them in that journey, and also perhaps just to get to get people to to realise that pain is a journey and it's a mm. joint journey. 
between the patient and the healthcare professionals to which they they come and help them realize it is a journey and we're there to support them not to stop something that you know that's that's going to send them to a panic and put them set them backwards yeah not to remove a useful tool that they've been finding that they perceive input. we need to persuade them yeah. that it's not useful and it's causing them harm i'm often using the language of negotiation so much these days with regards to to, to patients and, and and having them negotiate a, a conversation with a clinician collaboratively mm-hmm. pete moore was on the, the, the podcast recently as well on our patient matters series and i, I would say shameless plug now for for all of the patient matters episodes i think map so perfectly onto what we've talked about today is that their stories and the narratives their lived experience of these symptoms and the behaviors of it they're often talking about that moment where they started to collaborate and they started to participate pete mentions them uses the metaphors i know he was at the event you were at with you lucine he says that don't don't throw the patient into the passenger seat yeah. And uh, and that 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 joined up approach uh, and having a mature and an honest conversation about their individual circumstances is is key there. And I love that that's at the heart of heart of this when people might perceive, yeah. like we joked about earlier, it's yeah. a, a, a considered transactional and, and a short approach to just try this for yeah. a bit. Um, it, was, it needs to be more integrated. Isn't it? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. It's about empowering and engaging people. The last people thing people want in pain is to think that the being abandoned and they're being forgotten and they're not being listened to and people don't believe their pain is real Mm. because that's just uh, doing them a disservice we need to work with them say we're here to support you these are the facts you know put them in the driver's seat work with them uh we can you know that the facts are in front of their eyes if you actually look at the harms for medicines from my perspective my you know what i'm interested in from the and the lack of evidence perhaps and interventions we need to present that to them and help them with that journey rather than being doing it to them and therefore denying things yeah absolutely is there any way that people can reach you are you on any of the social medias uh, that they can, they can i'm not you? so good at social media yeah. as you are jack i'm very sorry but i'm sure they can contact through you, yourself or through uh, uh connect health uh or you know i've got an nhs email helen.ladell at nhs.net fantastic thank you very much what we will do as well as any of the resources that helen's described as well as we'll try and bait a couple of our favorite papers on this topic or reports on this topic we'll get out to you as part of the show notes newsletter as well as if you're not aware of it then every article that's referenced in the podcast over the years is on our google drive page that we have the link to if you're not already a subscriber to the newsletter so every month we have people stumble across that uh, and send us phoning emails saying they wish they'd have seen this earlier but yeah you're about five years late on it but it's there all of the previous resources from all the previous episodes are there and some resources from this one too thank you so much for your time helen thank you very uh, much jack hopefully we'll see each other soon thank you you've been listening to the physio matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters (laughs) brilliant